would encourage you to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 41, as together we are going to be going over Genesis 41. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 36, so not the entire chapter, which would be very long, but uh, the heart of Pharaoh's dream, stopping short of what Pharaoh declared after he had heard the interpretation of the dream from Joseph. But this is going to uh, mark the beginning of a turnabout, obviously, for Joseph uh, in, um, in what was happening to him in Egypt. Uh, and he would go from uh, the pit to the palace, from the dungeon to the highest position possible, save that of Pharaoh, and uh, that in very short order. But let's, uh, before we go to the word of God, let's go to the God who has given us his word, and let's ask for his help. God, our gracious Father, I pray now, Lord, that you would help us to concentrate upon your word. It is so very easy for us to simply sit and to have the words kind of sweep over us and not to take them in, for them literally to enter in one ear and then go out the other. We don't want that to happen, though, Lord. Our great desire is that the, your word would sink down within us and that it would find good soil in our hearts and that it would there provide that harvest that you are looking for. I do pray that you would help me to divide the word aright and that, Lord, I would be able to reach people's ears and that in turn you would reach people's hearts with your word and that you would call them to yourself. I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. And amen. Genesis chapter 41 and reading through verse 36. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Then it came to pass at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream and behold, he stood by the river. Suddenly there came up out of the river seven cows, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them out of the river, ugly and gaunt, and stood by the other cows on the bank of the river. And the ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven fine-looking and fat cows. So Pharaoh awoke. He slept and dreamed a second time. And suddenly seven heads of grain came up on one stalk, plump and good. Then behold, seven thin heads blighted by the east wind sprang up after them, and the seven thin heads devoured the seven plump and full heads. So Pharaoh awoke, and indeed it was a dream. Now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled, and he sent and he called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them for Pharaoh. Then the chief butler spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I remember my faults this day. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, both me and the chief baker, we each had a dream, and one night he and I, each of us, dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now, there was a young Hebrew man with us there, a servant of the captain of the guard, and we told him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each man he interpreted according to his own dream, and it came to pass just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me to my office. And he hanged him. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him quickly out of the dungeon, and he shaved, changed his clothing, and came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it, but I have heard it said of you that you can interpret a dream to interpret it, understand a dream to interpret it. So Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I stood on the bank of the river. 
Suddenly seven cows came up out of the river, fine-looking and fat, and they fed in the meadow. Then, behold, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such ugliness as I have never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the gaunt and ugly cows ate up the first seven, the fat cows. When they had eaten them up, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were just as ugly as at the beginning. So I awoke. Also I saw in my dream, and suddenly seven heads came up on one stalk, full and good. Then behold, seven heads, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprang up after them, and the thin heads devoured the seven good heads. So I told this to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. And Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams are one, and the seven thin and ugly cows which came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty heads blighted by the east wind are seven years of famine. This is the thing which I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them, Seven years of famine will arise, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will deplete the land. So the plenty will not be known in the land because of the famine following, for it will be very severe. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice, because the thing is established by God, and God will shortly uh, bring it to pass. Now therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this. And let him appoint officers over the land to collect one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of those good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh. And let them keep food in the cities. Then that food shall be as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which will be in the land of Egypt. That the land may not perish during the famine. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The Bible is literally filled with warnings given to people that unfortunately were not taken. Those warnings were ignored. The advice was good, but it was not followed. We can go all the way back to Cain, for instance. You remember the Lord saw his countenance and he warned him sin was crouching at the door. It desired to master him. Cain didn't listen. Go a little forward in time, we can see how uh, the people ignored Noah's warnings. He's building a giant boat in the middle of the land, and yet they will not hear his warnings that a flood is coming until it's too late for them to come inside. The people of Israel refused to hear the prophetic warning that if they rebelled against Babylon, they would be destroyed. They rebelled anyway. And again and again, the people of God have heard God's voice spoken through his prophets and they have sought not to do what he told them to do. Now, before we get all high and mighty and say, well, you know, of course we're smarter than that. Whenever we hear a warning, we heed it. I have to tell you, we live in a time of just breathtaking stupidity and evil. Uh, We tell people, if you remove fathers from the family, evil will be the result. We will have Uh, a a legion of young feral males who will end up in prison or in morgues if they don't have any direction. And yet we have said, no, no, fathers, not necessary, and thrown them to the four winds. We've done this so many different times. We were told specifically what factors bring about inflation, warned against them, and then we elected to do exactly those things. And surprise, 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 we've got inflation. 
We do it again and again. We hear competent warnings and then we ignore them. But I would ask you as we look at God's word today that you not be like that. That when you hear a warning that you take heed. You remember Pharaoh here, it receives a warning. But we remember a Pharaoh later on, obviously, in the word of God in the book of Exodus, who was not only warned, but shown what would happen if he ignored God's warnings, and yet he did it. So it's very possible for us even to see evil coming from not having heeded the warnings and then continue on in it. But I pray that we won't be like that. Well, we are back to Joseph, obviously. Joseph was 17, you'll remember, when he was sold into slavery in Egypt by his brothers. And we can figure out, uh, looking at these verses, verse 1 and then verse uh, 46, that he was 28 when the butler and the baker had their dreams. And yet he then spent two more years, that is 24 more months, languishing in jail without any hope of being released. He spent almost more time as a captive than he had spent free in Canaan. And obviously that had to have been discouraging. Uh, as I said last week, it could have become very easy for Joseph to become Joseph Sulks a lot. But he did not. Or uh, simply left in that condition after he realized that the butler had not told uh, Pharaoh about him, had not interceded for him and that he was still stuck there and nothing was changing, he could have been persuaded to put an end to himself. What is the point of this existence languishing in a prison? This is a hopeless situation. Why do I go on living? But he did not do that, despite the fact that he obviously he did not like his situation. He did not want to be there. He had never wanted to be a slave, never wanted to be a captive, but yet he did not trust in himself and his own reason. Rather, he continued to trust in God. And amazingly, as we can tell, he still trusted in those dreams that God had originally given him, that someday he would be exalted. He still believed, no matter what, no matter what was going on around him, he still believed in the sovereignty of God. And that is something that's clear from his words to the butler and the baker when they tell him their dreams, and also then later on, clear when he speaks to Pharaoh, as we've seen. Now, all of the hard times, and Joseph obviously couldn't have known this, but all of the hard times that he passed through, they were actually a preparation for what was to come. God had been using all of these events, bringing them together to prepare him for the position that he had told him already that he would enter into, uh, that he had shown him in his first dreams. And in that sense, he was rather like David. You remember David was told at an early age that someday he would be the king of Israel. Samuel comes and anoints him, this young shepherd boy. And yet, what did he have to go through before that time? Of course, he, first he, had to, he was running from Saul. Then he had to avoid being killed by, by the Philistines. He had to degrade himself by, by acting like a madman. And then there was this terrible civil war. It was by no means looking at the circumstances certain that David would indeed become the king that God had promised him he would. But nonetheless, that is exactly what happened because the Lord is sovereign over all the circumstances of our lives. Supposed chance happenings, as we might call them, are in fact all part of God's plan. We don't see that. We don't appreciate it. We don't see, for instance, as we're going through our life, how God is weaving all the strands of them together to produce the outcomes that he wants. But that's exactly what he's doing, not just in the life of, of Bible characters, but in your life and my life. 
He is weaving all of the strands together. Nothing, understand this, nothing happens in your life by random chance. There are no free molecules out there that are not under God's control. Everything that occurs in your life happens for a reason. And there are just some times that we have to trust in what God tells us, namely that all things will work for our good, even if we don't see how that's possible while it's happening. Well, what happened in this chapter? We saw that on his birthday, Pharaoh had two dreams in one night that he could not interpret. What happened in these dreams? Well, Pharaoh said that he he was standing by a river when several well-fed cows came out of the river. Now, that may be bizarre to us. Uh, The river is actually, um, in Hebrew, it's Eeyore. It means Nile, literally. It's, uh, It's a reference to the Nile River. And the Nile River was the source of life for the Egyptians. They depended upon the Nile overflowing in the spring and bringing this rich soil down from the heart of Africa. I'm going to be going in a little while, God willing, and please pray about this, to Uganda. Uh, Uganda is one of those states that uh, border Lake Victoria. Lake Victoria is actually the source of the Nile. So Lake Victoria brings all of this incredibly rich soil down towards the Mediterranean, the Nile Delta. And when the Nile overflowed, it would cover the fields in this, this rich soil, and then it would produce a great harvest later on. In times, however, of drought, when the Nile didn't overflow, the harvest was not nearly as good as you can imagine. Well, in any event, these, um, uh, these cows come out of the Nile, and I know it sounds weird, but uh, a commentator by Burgot, uh, called uh, Burgot, or named Burgot, I'm sure people didn't say, hey, look, it's Vergot. But anyway, um, uh, his last name is Vergot. He pointed out that Egyptian cattle like to stand almost submerged in the Nile River. They do this because it gets them away from the heat and it gets them away from the flies, particularly the blowflies that chase after them and so on. So it gives them a little bit of relief. Uh, I'm sure they don't do that in the areas where the crocodiles are particularly abundant, but that's, that's what they did. And, and so we see these seven... Uh, fat cows coming out of the river. They are, they are well fed, they're happy. But then we see seven starving cows coming out of the river and Pharaoh's dream at that point turns into a nightmare. I can't even imagine what it would look like to see cows eating cows, but that's exactly what he sees. And so he is definitely disturbed and he wakes up. I don't know if you've ever woken up from a dream like that. Have you ever had that moment where you're like, this is a dream, I want to wake up, I'm not enjoying this, let's get out of this dream and that kind of thing. I think that's probably what happened to him. But in any event, he wakes up and he's disturbed, but he eventually goes back to to sleep. And he has another dream. In this dream, he sees seven heads of grain, uh, which are fat and abundant. They have big kernels of wheat on them, and they'll provide enough food for his people. But then after them come these seven thin heads of grain, no kernels of wheat on them. They are blasted by the east wind. In Egypt, this east wind is called the Kamsen. It's a hot and desiccating wind. It's kind of like a convection oven, which dries up all of the moisture and essentially bakes the land. It can be absolutely devastating to crops because, of course, they need water in order to survive. Well, These heads of grain devour the fat ones, so it's kind of a scene like you have an evil uh, cannibalistic Groot eating other uh, heads of grain, or other Groots in this case. And um, uh, again, it's it's a nightmare, and Pharaoh is, to use the technical term, freaked out by his dreams. He believes these dreams, though, are a revelation. It's not something he ate, as Scrooge uh, tried to, to make out. It's not some sort of psychological problem he is having. 
he believes that God is trying to warn him. It is some sort of prophetic revelation that has been made to him. Uh, and he would look at these things. He could obviously see the repetition of, of numbers and so on. This means something, but what does it mean? Pharaoh is not in uh, the position that happily you are in. What do I mean by that? Well, you and I, brothers and sisters, have the Bible. The Bible is God's source of infallible revelation. It helps us to understand the world. When there are things that we don't understand, we can't figure out what can we do. We can go to the Bible or we can go to people who are steeped in the Bible. I hope you're doing that. When you ask for advice, I hope you go to people who know God's word and say, this is happening, what should I do? And then get good, solid biblical advice in, uh, in, uh, back to you. But he doesn't have anything like that. He unfortunately lives in a time uh, much like our own, where people uh, depend upon palm reading and tarot cards and astrology and so on, trying to peer vainly into the future, trying to climb up into the heavenlies and figure out what's going to happen in the future. You and I know what's going to happen in the future. If you're not aware of what's going to happen in the future, I would advise you to read to the end of the Bible. Read your way through Revelation and you will have an absolute certainty as to what is going to happen eventually. But at this point, obviously, he doesn't have this. So he goes to his Khartoum, his uh, magicians or wise men. And these were men who specialized in dream interpretation. They went to dream you, and they learned about various means of interpreting dreams and the positions of the stars and so on uh, from the magicians who had gone before them. But even they cannot come up with any sort of conjecture as to what this means. We don't know. Now, later on, we're going to see magicians in the time of Moses who also recognized eventually the finger of the Lord in something. And these magicians are absolutely stumped. Here is something which with all of their learning, all of their astrology and so on, they can't come up with a coherent explanation for. It is wisdom beyond their ken, wisdom beyond their understanding. It must be really from God. So Pharaoh, obviously, at this point, was probably more frightened and more frustrated, and he shares his fears and his frustrations with his confidant, the butler, the cupbearer. And it's at this point, of course, that the cupbearer recognizes that he had left his, his friend in the prison in the lurch, this young Hebrew man, as he calls him. He tells him, well, you know, I, I, I see my sins. I, I didn't speak for this young man. But he interpreted two dreams that I and your baker had correctly. He, he told us exactly what was going to happen. And indeed, they did come to place. And Pharaoh, on hearing this, he sends for Joseph to be brought to him from the prison as soon as possible. Now, one of the things that I want to see, and this is just a minor application, but it, it has a major impact in our lives if we understand it, which is simply this. God's timing, brothers and sisters, is not our timing. But God's timing is perfect, always perfect. Now, let us say that uh, our friend the butler had actually come immediately into the presence of Pharaoh on being released and had told him what Joseph had told him to say. Now, there are two outcomes that could have happened. Pharaoh could have dismissed it. He could have laughed all of this dream nonsense to scorn. Or perhaps he could have heard and then sent Joseph back to Canaan. Oh, I will have mercy on this young man and send him back. What would have been the outcome then? Well, there would have been no one to interpret his dreams in Egypt, and everybody would have starved to death. There would have been a worldwide famine of, of terrible uh, import, and indeed, as we shall see, the family of Joseph would have died in that famine. But God 
held that knowledge back for two years to exactly the right point. And then Joseph is sent for when there is a crisis, when there needs to be a dream interpreted and he doesn't have that particular dream. Joseph is washed and shaved and when they say shaved, now the interesting thing is they don't mean just here, shaved his beard and washed him and so on. Uh, the Egyptian men and women, and you can actually see this and one of the wonderful things about um, hieroglyphs, so they are, it's a pictographic language and so you're actually seeing figures from uh, Egypt. One of the things that you will notice is that almost all of the figures in uh, those hieroglyphs are bald. Uh, Egyptians shaved and plucked all of their body hair. I, I do not know why, but they did. Uh, people have speculated, well, it was because of parasites and lice and so on. Uh, and then they would make wigs out of human hair and wear them every day. So they would shave off all their hair and then wear somebody else's. But there you have it. Um, Hebrews, of course, were later in the law of God told not to do that. You shall not shave around the sides of your head. You shall not disfigure the edges of your beard. I try very hard not to disfigure the edges of my beard, even though I'm not constrained by the ceremonial law and so on. So um, Joseph, in any event, after he's gone through all of this preparation to enter into the presence of Pharaoh, he comes before him. And the first thing that he says to him, and this is of note too, remember this. He says, the answer is not in me. I'm not like your magicians. I did not go to astrologer school. I did not learn all of these things about the positions of stars and the various omens and their interpretation. I have not read the works of former magi or any of those things. I don't need to because the answer to these things comes directly from God himself. He is not versed in the science of dreams, but rather he says just with this perfect brevity, God will give the answer. Tell me what happened and then the Lord will explain it to you. Uh, and this is a wonderful thing when we see this young man giving glory to God. He could have said, yes, I am, you know, I will be able to give you the answer. Tell me and so on, but he doesn't. He remembers what James tells us in one, uh, James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So what does Joseph do? And I want you to note this. Joseph stands before Pharaoh and he fearlessly declares the word of God. And in essence, this is a sermon, believe it or not. What do I mean by that? Well, it's, it's a sermon. It's got a sermonic shape to it. First, you have doctrine. God is showing Pharaoh what he is about to do. That's the central point of this sermon. Then there's the content. This is what will happen. And then finally, there's the application. This is what you must do. And generally speaking, all good sermons will have that shape. That's, that's actually the shape of a Puritan plain speech sermon. Believe it or not, it's the shape of the sermons that I, I bounce off of you on a regular basis. I try to, to stick to that format. But he tells him exactly what to do. This is a huge difference from fatalism. One of the things that, uh, uh, that sometimes uh, irritates friends of mine to no end uh, when they go into the Islamic world is the inshallah um, uh, mindset. Well, if it's Allah's will, it's going to happen. Nothing can change it. Well, maybe if we weren't driving at 80 miles an hour through narrow streets in the middle of Cairo with kids just jumping out of the way just in time, it would not be Allah's will to run them down. Perhaps if we lowered the speed to, I don't know, 50, 35 maybe, or something like that. Maybe there's some sort of application of wisdom uh, and God's law, which states thou shalt not kill, that applies in this situation. 
That is what we must do when we hear from God. I mean, for instance, when God tells us you're in the middle of sin, what is he telling us to do? There's no hope for you. I'm going to destroy you. That's what God says to us, right? No. Why does he tell us we're in the middle of sin? So that we might have time to repent and change. Fatalism, brothers and sisters. We're Calvinists. We believe in the sovereignty of... I hope we're Calvinists. We're all Calvinists, right? We're all Reformed. But we believe in the sovereignty of God, absolutely. But we believe also in human responsibility. We believe in God's sovereignty and human responsibility. When you're told something is out of step, what do you need to do? You need to change it. And when we're told something is coming, we need to react to it with wisdom. So Joseph tells Pharaoh, this is not merely fatalism. These things are not um, you know, absolutely going to happen. Well, we know that certain things are going to come to pass, but we can take steps to deal with them. You need to be wise. You need to manage your country well. There are going to be seven years of plenty. Nothing will change that. Followed by seven years of famine. There will be no avoiding that as well. So the key here is to prepare. We need Pharaoh to appoint a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. And of course, I've sort of kind of given it away, but next week we're going to find out who Pharaoh appoints over Egypt because he does actually take the advice that Joseph is going to give to him. Well, I want to give you three applications. The first is this. One, avoid tunnel vision. And what do I mean by that? I mean that we become entirely subjective. We begin to view our lives based upon the situation that we're currently in, in whatever situation we're in, and we begin to think it cannot change from here. Now, had that been the case with Joseph stuck in the middle of prison, as I said, he might despair. No matter what I do, no matter how well I do, nothing seems to get better. In fact, it gets worse. I tell my father that my brothers have been naughty. What do they do? They sell me into slavery. I'm in slavery, but I do my very best, and I become steward of the house of Potiphar. What happens then? I'm framed and thrown in jail. An opportunity comes my way to do good to someone by telling them the truth about their dreams, and they're in a position to get me out of jail, perhaps, and they don't. Nothing I do makes my life better. Why even bother? Lord, are you even listening? Do you even care? But of course, the Lord had not forgotten him. And the harder thing to understand is that all of those things that happened that made his life miserable in the short term, they were sent by God. They were appointed for a purpose so that Joseph was in exactly the position that he needed to be in when Pharaoh had his dreams. So remember that applies in your life as well. Things will happen in your life. I'm going to use a technical term here that suck, that you really don't like, that are unpleasant. Providence says you don't enjoy, but they come into your life from the hand of a God who loves you and who desires the best for you. And it is your job, it is our job to respond to those things, not merely to sit where we are, to complain, to sulk, and to say, God doesn't love me because these things have happened. And to remember sometimes that the reason things are happening in our lives is we're being chastened. Whom the Father loves, he chastens. If he loves you and you sin, what's he going to do? He's going to chasten you. He's going to correct you. Does anybody enjoy chastening? How many of our children say, oh, 
Dad, I have to tell you, I, I lied the other day, but I'm really looking forward to the spanking that comes when I do. So let's get this show on the road. I even brought your biggest belt. Of course they don't do that. They don't enjoy the process. But the chastening is supposed to bring about correction and set us in the right direction. Don't fall prey, therefore, to getting wrapped up around the axle, to becoming uh, your own guest of honor, your personal pity party, gradually spiraling down and down and down. Keep your perspective open to the fact that God is still working in your life. And that no matter what happens, eventually, if you are beloved of God, it will work for your good, no matter what. Secondly, be a Christian of true speech. And I mean true speech before the world. Joseph does not hesitate to declare the full will of God to Pharaoh. He does not varnish it. He does not attempt to bring honor to himself. He simply speaks the truth. And that has been the case of all of God's servants. They have again and again, no matter what the potential outcomes were, if they were truly God's men, they have stood before these leaders and they have told them the truth. Moses stands before Pharaoh and he tells him things that he does not want to hear. And he tells him, he in fact says, God is commanding you, let my people go. Samuel stands before Saul and says, the Lord is now taking the kingdom away from you. He's going to raise up somebody else after his own heart, something that could have gotten him killed. Nathan tells David he's a wicked adulterer and that his baby is going to die. These are not things that men said before tyrants and survived. The apostles and then Stephen stand before the Sanhedrin and they tell them the truth as well. And they're punished for it. The apostles are beaten with rods. Stephen is put to death. Paul stands before three rulers, Festus, Agrippa, and Bernice, and he, and he tells them the truth. He tells them that the only way to be saved is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord's appointed Messiah. Again and again, we see in the word of God, the servants of God standing before these rulers and telling them the full counsel of God, holding nothing back. We need to be that kind of people today. One of the reasons why our world is in such terrible shape is that the church has not declared the truth <laughs> to these rulers. We haven't said to the nation that we're living in, we haven't told them that if, we if you continue on in the way that you're going, not just you, but the entire nation will go to hell. Do you not understand that? And so many Christians are like, well, well, they know that. No, they don't. I didn't know that. I mean, in my heart of hearts, I knew that there was a God, but I denied him. I pushed that away. I pushed, I, I did not know how to be saved. The average American is as clueless about how to be saved as, quote, the innocent natives in Africa were before we evangelized the continent. I really mean that. I'm related to people who have no clue whatsoever, and they live within Great Britain and the United States of America. They have no clue how to be saved, none whatsoever, and they don't believe it. Brothers and sisters, it's our calling to tell the truth to these people, to tell them what they need to do. We must do the same before our own leaders and our own people, and I'm appalled at how we try to tailor the message for the society, how we try to blunt the edge of God's sword, which is sharp and divides even between bone and marrow. We shouldn't be doing that. We should be telling the truth. 
Remember this in Ezekiel 33. The Lord spoke to uh, Ezekiel and he warned him. He said, I'm setting you as a watchman before the people. And I want you to hear the words that the Lord spoke to him. In Ezekiel 33, starting in verse 1, he said, Son of man, speak to the children of your people and say to them, When I bring a sword upon a land, and the people of the land take a man from their territory and make him their watchman, when he sees the sword coming upon the land, if he blows the trumpet and warns the people, then whoever hears the sound of the trumpet and does not take warning, if the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be on his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet, but he did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. But he who takes warning will save his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet and the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes away uh, any person from them, he is taken away in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So you, son of man, I have made a watchman. I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Therefore, you shall hear a word from my mouth and warn them for me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you shall surely die. And you do not speak to warn the wicked from his way. That wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Nevertheless, if you warn the wicked to turn from his way and he does not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. So brothers and sisters, the Lord who desires that we would warn people and who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Later on, he says, say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked should turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? What's our calling? Brothers and sisters, is to be watchmen on the wall. It is to warn people of the approach of the sword, to tell them if you continue on in this wickedness, you will be destroyed. But if we know what's going to happen to somebody, if you were to see somebody, and it's, a, it's an oft-used example, if you were to see somebody walking while they, they watch their phone as they often do. I have actually watched a person in New York City walk directly into a lamppost while holding their phone and then fall flat on their butt. I'm like, well, I don't want to be in bed. Oh, too late. <laughs> and you should feel a little guilty in that situation. But if they're walking towards a cliff and there's a pit of fire underneath the cliff, are you being kind if you don't warn them about it? Well, the answer is, of course, no. We heard this morning that the wickedest thing that we can do, the meanest thing that we can do, is not to warn people about the plight they're in and show them what to do. Warn them how to be saved. Show them where they need to go. If you warn somebody about their sin and the solution to their sin, and they don't listen to you, is there blood on your head? No. But if we don't warn them, and they continue on in their wickedness, and they're destroyed and they go to hell, then the Lord has said, that's on you. That's your fault. So, if I tell you what's going to happen, and you don't listen, and it comes to pass, whose fault is that? No, it's yours. It's not mine. I, I warned you. Pharaoh, you know, this could have dismissed Joseph at that point. He could have said, get out of here. Somebody take this Hebrew slave back to jail with all of his seven years of famine. And then gone on. He would have enjoyed seven years of plenty. And then there would have been the seven years of Pharaoh, uh, famine. And it would have been on his head. I have... 
in my experience, warn people about what is going to happen if they continue on. I, I stood up, uh, probably not as eloquently as I should have. I probably didn't prepare enough, didn't use all the words. I wish I was a better speaker and so on. But I stood up at PCA assembly after PCA assembly. One in particular when they were voting to get rid of our confessional standards, preventing people from uh, entering into the PCA, entering into ministry without truly believing what the PCA says it believes in its confessional standards. They were trying to produce loose subscription or system subscriptions. They, uh, they call it instead of strict subscription. I said to them, you do this, the day will come when you will regret it. Every man in the assembly will regret it and wish they could go back in time and do it all over again. Because what will happen, we're removing the walls of the city, saying we don't need them. Everybody come in. And then pretending that wickedness will not bring in men who don't believe a word of what we're saying and allow them to corrupt the PCA. That's exactly what happened. Now, how did that happen? Was it that I was an inspired prophet? And the answer is no, the wisdom is not in me. I simply read God's word. I saw what happened in the past and I applied it to the present and boom, it happened again. But I warned them. Their blood was not on my hands. I can honestly say that. Now, it hurts my heart that that happened. It really does. It grieves me to the very core. But it grieves me even more when I stand before you guys, particularly the younger people in this congregation, and I warn you about what will happen if you don't turn and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, if you don't put your faith in him, if you don't turn away from your philosophies or the way of the world or all the things that entrap you and so on. And you continue on in the way that you're going. You don't turn to the Lord Jesus Christ because you are bringing judgment down upon your own heads. And that grieves me even more. It grieves me to my very core, if I can say that. So let me say this. In Deuteronomy 30:15, the Lord says this. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his judgments, that you may live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land which you go to possess. But if your heart turns away so that you do not hear and are drawn away and worship other gods and serve them, I announce to you today that you will surely perish. You shall not prolong your days in the land which you cross over the Jordan to go in and possess. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God and that you may obey his voice and that you may cling to him for he is your life and the length of your days and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them that same declaration is made to you every single time the gospel is preached. You are warned that if you go after other gods, gods of your own devising or the gods of the nations, whatever gods they are, that it will be your destruction, that it will result in nothing but death. And then you are told to choose life. How do we choose life? By following the Lord Jesus Christ, by setting our hearts upon him, trusting in him, giving ourselves over to him, surrendering to him. Now, there are so many people who are thinking that some sort of, oh, the heavens should open, the hand of God should come down and, you know, turn me in the right direction or something like that. It really is this simple that you surrender to him, that you give over trying to save yourself. It doesn't need to be any, oh, you know, explosion that occurs in your life, but only a realization that if you continue on in the way that you're going, you'll die. 
and not just for time, but for eternity. And so I pray that you will choose life, that you will love the Lord your God, and that you will choose the way of salvation that he sets before you in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. No one who trusts in him has ever come to shame. Let's go before the Lord. God, our Father, I pray, Lord, that when we are warned, as Pharaoh was warned by Joseph, that we will take it to heart and we will make provision, that we will flee from the wrath to come, as John the Baptist put it. Help us to be wise, to recognize that Jesus and the apostles weren't lying about what they said, that Peter wasn't making it up when he said there's no other name under heaven by which men are to be saved. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the wisdom, the insight, and the determination to follow after Christ. 